Join me in reading from God's word, Jonah chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Sounds like I'm going to be loud. I'm starting soft. Let's pray together. Uh, Father God, we praise you for the amazing grace that we have experienced in you. God, that you pulled us up out of a dry land and planted us by streams of living water. And you have called us your sons and daughters. Father, give us boldness and confidence this morning in the reality of our identity in Christ. And ignite in us a desire that our lives would reflect the love that we have experienced in him. It's in your name we pray. Amen. We're in the third chapter of Jonah, right? It's awesome. It's like Jonah had some sort of a, a hard reboot in his heart while he was in the water. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you And so the only difference here in chapter 3 is that Jonah actually does what God says. He arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. So it's definitely a better start than chapter 1 of this book. Jonah's listening to the command of God. He's being obedient to the word of God. And and Jonah rolls up into Nineveh and does exactly what God told him to do. He called out against the people of Nineveh, yet... Forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And just to be clear, this word translated as overthrown in Hebrew is the same word God used in reference to Sodom and Gomorrah. So, when God overthrows something, it's serious business. So, I mean, just think about this situation. Jonah is a Hebrew prophet walking into the middle of a huge powerful pagan city full of people who have historically been brutal and have been longtime enemies of Israel. 
and he is dropping threats of divine annihilation from a God whom they don't even believe in. That's pretty crazy, right? That's, that's gutsy. But just like we've seen in Jonah's life over these first two chapters, Jonah's sinful flight from God was not outside of God's plan. It wasn't outside of God's control, but rather it was the very context through which God was bringing redemption in his life. And in the same way, God had a plan for Nineveh, but it wasn't a plan for destruction. It was a plan for redemption. See, God didn't send Jonah because he, he planned to overthrow this city with a, a miraculous act of destructive power. His plan was to sack the city with miraculous grace and mercy through the work of the Holy Spirit and one very unlikely hero, our fleeing prophet, Jonah. And, and I think we, we all love hero stories, right? I do. Epic tales of people going up against unimaginable odds and prevailing. And it's easy for us to read Scripture through the lens of the hero. And I, I really think the Western church has done us a quite tremendous dis, disservice in this department. Because I, I, how many of you grew up hearing sermons about the story of David and Goliath as if you were David? Right, show of hands, come on. Right? Some of you are not being honest. As if we are the tip of the spear for God's kingdom, and everyone who stands against us, or our rights, or our political views, or what color carpet should be in the church, they are obviously Goliath. And we've been commissioned by God to slay the Goliaths in our lives. But there's a problem with that. We are not David. We're not David in that story. We're just not. On our best day, we're the faithless soldiers, but more realistically, we are the Philistines. We are the enemies of God. And only by the grace of Jesus, we've been grafted in to his family. See, Jesus is the epic hero of our story. We are not. He is the victor, and we are called to follow him, to watch how he battled sin and death, and to use all of the divine power that is now ours from him to follow him. And Jesus conquered sin and death. He conquered the spiritual forces of darkness by laying down his life by laying down his rights, by being misunderstood and falsely accused and not fighting back, by trusting his Father's sovereign power and love to work all things together for good. But so many professing believers seem to miss that Jesus. That's why 2020 was such a train wreck for the church, in America at least, Professing believers found countless hills to die on, to wage war on, to fight the self-proclaimed Goliaths. And I know, like, I got to be careful, I'm going to get canceled, right? Don't freak out. 
But there is only one hill worth dying on, and that's the hill of Calvary. It's the hill of the gospel. Jesus laid down his rights. He laid down his glory. He laid down what he deserved so that we might partake in what we do not deserve. And our call is to risk and to stake our lives on the gospel of Jesus, not our political agendas, not our preferences or our rights. It is to follow Jesus in laying down our lives, to get past ourselves and past our opinions and to proclaim that there is salvation nowhere else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved. And it's quite possible that God may use you for amazing things in his kingdom, but we need to stop viewing ourselves as the heroes of Christianity and realize that Christ is our victor. He is the hero of our story, and our call is to follow him in laying down our lives and proclaiming the gospel of his kingdom. See, we live in this society that glorifies the self above everything else. And the result is that life becomes this battle to build the biggest empire, to amass the most stuff before the clock runs out, to get the most influence, the most power, to get our guy or our girl in a government position to secure our safe and comfortable existence. See, it's, it's rare to hear stories about people dying to save others. It's rare. But you can turn on the news any night of the week and hear about people killing to preserve their way of life, killing to preserve their pride or their money or their reputation. Rather than dying to save others, people kill to preserve and amass and consume for themselves. And the problem with living our lives for ourselves is that we all die. That is the plight of humanity. Ten out of ten, right? Ten out of ten of us are going to die. And when we are laying in our deathbeds, taking inventory of our lives, we will, we will either know with great clarity or we will realize like Jonah did in the water that there is no hope in life apart from God. So, so many of the things that we thought were so important that we fought for and argued about and spent so much time chasing will amount to nothing at the end of our life. Our self-made glory dies with us. But Christ is calling us to an eternal hope, to an eternal kingdom that transcends death. And so the call of the gospel is to die to ourselves and to put our hope in God who has defeated death, to find our deepest treasure and purpose in Christ, our promise of eternal life. See, the allure of worldly power and money and fame are hollow. They're fleeting substitutes for eternal glory with Jesus to knowing and being known by Him. If we see, seek life in these things, in the things of the world, we may very well gain the whole world. That is possible. But we also may very well lose our soul. 
In Matthew 16, 25 and 26, Jesus says, Forever, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? It's kind of a weird question, right? What is the price on your soul? Right? Is there some price where it's like, okay, I'll give this up? That's what Jesus says. What shall a man give in return for his soul? You see, like Jonah, we have been called to die to ourselves, to die to our idols, and to offer our lives for God's purposes in the world, for his kingdom, to find eternal hope in him. We've been called out of the mundane, self-seeking life into this epic work of transforming the world for his glory. We are heralds of eternal life proclaiming that even death cannot contain those who trust in him. This is the call for the stay-at-home mom and for the engineer and for the pastor alike. We are heralds of God's eternal kingdom. As we see through Jonah, letting go, though, of our own life for the sake of God's call, it's, it's painfully slow. Even after his near-death experience, we're going to see Jonah struggling again in chapter 4. But the hope we find here in the story is that God uses unlikely heroes, unlikely normal people, to bring glory to his name in amazing ways. And and next week, we're going to talk more about the Ninevites' repentance, but what I want to talk about today is that Because of God's persistent grace, our sin and struggles and failures do not render us useless to God, but rather they make us perfect candidates for both being transformed and carrying this message of transformation to the world through His grace. So as we read at the beginning, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, arise and go to Nineveh. And if you think about this, just how this story goes down, in our corporate-driven, performance-based society, this second chance doesn't make a whole lot of sense, does it? It doesn't make sense. Jonah was a failed prophet, right? Epic fail. He had been called to do the work of God, and he ran the other direction from God. He sought his own way apart from God and rejected the call on his life. There had to be a long list of prophets who were more qualified and more willing to carry God's message to Nineveh. God made clear that Nineveh is a great city. And this calling is of utmost importance. So why send Jonah? If you were a a general in the military facing this pivotal battle in war, you wouldn't pick the guy that went AWOL the last time you you commanded him to do something. You'd go with a guy who's trustworthy, proven in battle. That would be the wise choice. You want SEAL Team 6, not Napoleon Dynamite. But here's the thing. 
1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 25 says, The foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And so what we have to understand as we read this text, and really all of Scripture, is that we are the ones functioning from a skewed perspective, not God. God's actions in the world are always mind-boggling to us because we're crippled by worldly wisdom. God's revelation of himself in his word redefines what is true and what is wise and what is real. Just look at the concept of grace. It is foolishness to the wisdom of the world. In the world, you get what you deserve. Survival of the fittest. But grace is undeserved favor. The only reason we understand grace at all is because we have been shown grace. Even if you don't know God as your Savior, your understanding of grace and the daily blessings of life and health are only possible because of God. So it's hard for us to comprehend how God could ever use someone like Jonah after he had fled from God in willful disobedience, or how he could continue to use us after our continual neglect of his calling on our lives. But what we need to realize is that God was not made in our image. We were made in his. He is redefining our understanding of the world through the lens of his persistent grace to the praise of his glory. 1 Corinthians 1, 22 through 24, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greek, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. See, Christ didn't die because he saw a a glimmer of hope and potential in humanity. He didn't see a tinge of goodness. He died because we had no hope apart from his grace. Christ crucified is the ultimate picture of grace, and it is the ultimate stumbling block to the world because the power and the wisdom of God are at odds with the power and the wisdom of this world. The first will be last. The weak will be strong. The poor will be rich. The wisdom of the world is turned upside down through the lens of the gospel. Jonah was a horrible choice for this great mission through the lens of worldly wisdom. But in the wisdom of God, he was the perfect man for the job. Because God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. God uses foolish sinners to lead the church in amazing ways. And that's what we see throughout Scripture, right? Peter's the disciple who was really well known for messing everything up, right? Doesn't he make you feel so good? He messed everything up. He chops the ear off the guard. He lacks faith in walking on water. He falls asleep in the garden with Jesus, And then he denies Jesus three times. 
but, but what does Jesus say to Peter? I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Whoa, right, he was such a mess up. And yet, look at all that God did through him. Or, or we could go to Paul, right? One of the first greatest persecutors of the church who oversaw the death and imprisonment of numerous Christians. But God had a different plan for Paul's life. After, after his encounter with Jesus on the road to, the, to, to Damascus, when God told Ananias to go meet this guy Saul like on the street called Straight, which I always like that, Straight Street, Ananias is like, whoa, whoa, God, I've heard about this guy. He's horrible, murdering, persecuting. And, and it's crazy because, as I think, it's like a Jonah thing, except Ananias didn't run. Like, God says, do it, and Jonah says, Jonah, slow words. Whew. I had a foundations class before, so I'm, I'm reeling. God tells Ananias to go. And Ananias is like, no, 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 I'm not going. This guy's bad. And God says, go a second time, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. I love it. See, we have a tendency to use our imperfection as a delay tactic, as some sort of excuse shield to following God. As if someday we're going to arrive at sinless perfection and be ready to answer God's call on our life. And if that's how you roll, you're going to be waiting a really long time. We will always struggle with sin, but through the power of the Holy Spirit, through Christ's sacrifice, we have all things for life and godliness. We are fully equipped for the call of God on our lives. So in order for us to embrace the calling on our lives to transform the world through God's grace, we must let go of our idea of who we think God would use for his purposes and listen to who God says he will use for his purposes. That's a long sentence that basically means stop pretending like you're God and realize there is a God and it's not you. And listen to what he says. He says, I will use you. Titus 2.14, it says, Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify us for him, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. See, God is not seeking perfect lives, but humble hearts. Hearts that rest in the sufficiency of his persistent grace so that he might use us in this world. God is not concerned with where you have been, but where you are going. So the second characteristic of God's work, we talked about persistent grace. Um, the second thing we see in Jonah's life and in ours is that faith is forged through suffering. It, through God's persistent grace, he molds and he shapes us for his purposes. The trials Jonah faced in the first two chapters of this story 
were preparing him for the work God had planned for his life. In order for Jonah to serve God faithfully in Nineveh, God had to break down some of these idols in his heart. So having experienced the grace of God in a powerful way in his life in chapter 2, Jonah was able to faithfully fulfill his ministry as a prophet to Nineveh. And, and now, if we were just to stop reading at the end of chapter 3, we could really package this story well. Like, that would make things far easier for us because we could say, struggle, repentance, redemption. Yes, like that's what we want. But this isn't Hollywood. The, the reality of our struggles with faith are that we often take two steps forward and one step back. Jonah had, had learned a lot about God's grace in the water, but he wasn't done learning. He was still being refined by God, and we will see that next week. Jonah still had more struggles to face. Paul says in Romans 5 that we rejoice in our suffering because suffering leads to hope. It is in our suffering that we are shaped and molded and prepared for God's service. It is through suffering that we are made to be servants. See, like the darkest times in my life are some of the richest memories of God's work in my heart. Now, in the midst of those struggles, I was blind to God's hand. But now I can look back and know that these times were formative in shaping my faith, in teaching me compassion and humility. And I'm still learning those things. Because until we experience suffering in our own lives, we just can't understand it well in the lives of others. We can often look at others' sufferings and think to ourselves, I hope that doesn't happen to me. Or it can't really be that bad. Or I would handle that differently. Or even sometimes we presume that they have somehow brought this struggle upon themselves until it happens to us, until we're the ones struggling. It is when we experience suffering and failure and struggle that we learn humility and compassion by the grace of God. See, Paul was able to rejoice in his suffering because he knew that it is suffering that produces dependence upon God. And God was his eternal hope. But if there is nothing greater than ourselves in the world nothing worth dying for, then struggles, they, they, they challenge our very existence. If we are all that matters, then danger risks everything. But when we die to ourselves and embrace a hope of the abundant and eternal life in Christ, we can proclaim with Paul that to live is Christ, but to die is gain. We win. Jesus says in John 12, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Until we let go of our life and trust in the promise of eternal life in Christ, we will not bear fruit. 
We will never find the hope and the peace that we so desperately desire. Suffering and failure help to put to death pride and put to death arrogance and self-dependence. They point us to our need of a Savior. And our effectiveness as ambassadors of Christ is dependent upon how we respond to failure and struggles in our lives. They only ruin us if we let them. So when we face trials in life, do they drive us inward to to bitterness or to shame? Or do they drive us into the powerful arms of God and serve as an opportunity to increase our faith? Do we believe the words of God from 2 Corinthians 12, 9, when he says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness? And those were words to Paul, right? Our great persecutor. So again, our second point is that God uses suffering to increase our compassion and humility and faith. And in his persistent grace, he will use us through our suffering if we put our hope in him. And then the final point I want to talk about is that God is a sending God. His grace in our lives always comes with a call to action. When Jonah gets vomited up onto dry land, God doesn't come to Jonah and say, I know the last few days have been pretty rough for you. Why don't you take some time off and sit on the beach and relax? Right? You've had a big few days. No. God says, get up. It's time to go. See, the mission of God is not for the well-rested or the people with free time or the people with money or the people without money or the theologically trained. It's for anyone who says, I belong to God. Jonah, now that you've experienced my infinite power and persistent grace in your life, are you ready to go? I'm about to do something far greater than command a fish. I'm about to transform the hearts of a nation, and you're the guy that's going. And God comes to us in the same way, calling us out of ourselves and into his plan of redemption in the world. We have been brought into his grace for the purpose of being sent out as heralds of his glory. And this is the cycle that we see throughout Scripture. In Genesis 12, God comes to Abraham, and he says, I'm going to bless you. I want to make you a really big nation, like sand of the sea big. And I'm going to bless you so that you will be a blessing to all the nations of the world. And then what does God say? He says, go. It's time to pack up. Go. God blesses us to be a blessing. He heals us so that we might bring healing to others. And the only way that we can be a blessing and be a healer in our life is if we go. If we see our daily lives as the mission field for God. God is calling us out of ourselves, out of our routines, out of our comfort, 
This may mean he's calling you to get involved with some ministry or maybe a person's life that's going to cost you. People are costly. They may cost you time or money or comfort. They may call you at odd hours. They may seek you out when they're struggling. They may require your attention when you don't want to give it. When we engage in ministry and in the lives of people, they have a piece of us. They have a claim on our lives. When we listen to God's call and we go, we are pulled out of our well-defined and established routines and we are immersed in the messiness of people's lives. But God has blessed you to be a blessing. And he has healed you that you might offer healing to others. See, the beauty of a life poured out for God is that when we follow him, we are empowered by him for this work. His grace and his power flows through us, and the product is thanksgiving to God. That's what 2 Corinthians 9.11 says, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. I love that text. In order for Christ Church to be God's agent in transforming this community, we must embrace the all-sufficient grace that God has offered to us, which will enrich us in every way, to be generous in every way, that our labor would produce thanksgiving to God. So the third point is that through God's persistent grace, we are blessed to be a blessing. We are a people who have been sent out by God to bring healing to a lost and dying world through the power of Jesus. So let me close with this. Christ became weak so that we might be strong. He died so that we might live. He rose again on the third day to free us from bondage to the fear of death and to make a way for us back to God. So if you are sinful, broken, and prone to failure, you are perfectly positioned to be used by God. Christ is calling you to a life of repentance and faith, to stop seeking fulfillment in this world and to embrace the promise of eternal life in Him. My prayer for this community is that we would listen to the call of God on our lives and to live boldly in this community, knowing that He will transform us for His glory when we answer His call to go. Let's pray together. Father God, you have granted us all things for life and godliness. We say it all the time, almost every Sunday, in hopes that we will grow to believe it. God, you have equipped us with unique gifts and have called us to use our gifts and our talents and our resources for your glory and for the advancement of your kingdom. God, increase our faith. 
Let us experience the joy of laying our lives down for you and for others. That we might see the power of the gospel at work in our midst. It's in your name we pray.